Hi, I'm Drew. And I'm John. And this episode and every future episode is dedicated to the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. Today we have special guest Stephen Menno with us. He's going to spill his guts to us in an exclusive interview. For those of you who follow indie horror, he's the man behind the Malevolence trilogy. The trilogy is centered around a child who turns into a murderer. It's poignant stuff and we love it. Stephen also did the film Brutal Massacre, a comedy, which is a great comedy film, and he's also an author. We can't wait to pick his brain. All that and more today on High on Horror. John, check this shit out. This shit's called Mac Melon. That's what I'm about to spark up. It's another hybrid strain. <laughs> I'm sorry, the ba- the bag is literally a melon with Mac over Mac Miller's face. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's another uh hybrid strain that's good for just fucking you up. It's gonna knock you out. So uh yeah, we're gonna be pretty fucked up today. I'm gonna spark us up, John. I mean it also it does have hashtag RIP Mac Miller. What do you got going on for us in horror history this week? This week in horror history. Well, this week uh, we have from July 18th, 1980, we have Prom Night. Drew, I know know you're a fan of the movie. Yes, I am. Yep. Now, for me, I hadn't seen Prom Night in a while. And I went back and I, I watched it since the anniversary was coming up. And I have to say, I now know why I haven't watched it. Because I was like, it has Leslie Nielsen, which I forgot he was in it. Jamie Lee Curtis. I was like, yeah, you know, why haven't I watched this in a while? I, I watched it, and I think that Gene Siskel probably summed it up best, that it was a lesser version of Halloween crossed with Carrie. Well, um, that's that's interesting. Yeah, me and you are on uh, opposite sides of the fence here on this one. Um, I love Prom Night. I think it's a great Canadian slasher film. My only complaint is uh, too much disco music, you know, but uh, that was the time. I get it. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis looks sexy as hell in that movie. I'm sorry. Um, But the twist is really nice. You know, uh, the reason behind the killings is powerful and one of the few early slasher films to make the audience understand emotionally why a killer kills. Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Black Christmas, all of those kind of got by on the randomness of the acts of violence with no real motivation for the audience to understand from their perspective. Prom Night doesn't get enough credit for that, in my opinion. Alex, played by Michael Tuff, going after the kids that caused his sister's death six years prior, I could see his motivation. I sympathize with him. I'm close with my sister. I'm not saying that I'd become a murderer, but I'm saying that I'm a bit more, you know, a bit more thought went into this killer than prior films that just wanted to stalk and slash uh, with that type of mentality. You know, uh, I don't think it's better than any of the aforementioned films. I'd never say it's better than Halloween or Friday the 13th or anything like that. But I do think it is a solid effort and a classic by director Paul Lynch, who later did Humongous. Um, actually, speaking about uh, the disco music, I don't know if you were aware uh, they actually did use actual disco songs, but then they were worried about copyright, and uh, within five days they had to go back and make disco songs that sounded like the actual song and make it close enough, but not close enough that they were going to get sued. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, I actually did hear something about that where uh, they had to go back and they just kind of mimicked the music just enough to get by without getting sued. Yeah, I did hear about that. 
And I will agree, Jamie Lee Curtis looks amazing. But uh, speaking of Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, the dance scene uh, with her father, played by Leslie Nielsen, uh, first off, that whole dance sequence just went on way, way too long, in my opinion. And the dance moves she, she has with her father, at first I laughed at them, because I was like, this is ridiculous. Not that I'm an expert dancer myself. But then secondly, I was like, wait, this is the exact same dance moves that she was doing in True Lies in the striptease scene. So, I mean, it really paid off. She built it back during prom night. Well, uh, I actually never noticed the uh, similarities to the dance scenes, but I'm definitely more than willing to go back and watch and compare. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. But uh, I have to say, though, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to take the thunder from uh, prom night. You know, I know that's our movie this week and all, but I have to say that the true gem that gets overlooked is the sequel, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, which came out seven years later in 1987. That movie is incredible. The soundtrack, the acting, everything. I've been in love with that movie since I can remember. Uh, it has no real relation to the first film besides the fact that it takes place at a prom. It's really more Carrie than Prom Night, but it's a real nice supernatural horror film. I highly recommend it. Did you see it? Yeah, no, actually, that's funny that uh, you brought up Prom Night, too. I was going to say that Prom Night isn't even the best one in the series. Not that it's a uh, overall amazing series, but Prom Night 2 is definitely better. I mean, Joe Bob hosted that, and I mean, if anybody hasn't seen it, you can definitely go check that out on Shudder. But of the two, I would recommend Part 2 over the first one. Yeah, Part 2 really needs a, a good home video release. Uh, I still have it on DVD. It's like a double feature with another film. It might be April Fool's Day. I don't remember. But for some reason, the the lack of love for Prom Night 2, which, by the way, is another Canadian horror film, um, the, the lack of love for that just seems to, like, blow me away you get all these shitty movies that keep getting released like vinegar syndrome is like tackling all these movies that are just ass and i'm sorry i love vinegar syndrome but a lot of these movies are just like you know they're bad that's that's the thing you know that's the the cool thing about you know what they release but like in comparison you have movies like prom night out there that are just kind of you know floating in limbo and you're like when the hell's prom night 2 gonna get an actual release like this movie deserves to be recognized and now it's time to move on the puff puff ass where we answer questions that are sent in from our listeners on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and through email. Yo, man! Puff, puff, pass! I'll start with our first question. Kristen from Kenneth Square, PA, asks, What movie absolutely fucked you up where you couldn't sleep or be in the dark? Uh, this is very easy for me. Hands down, The Exorcist. The story goes like this. I was about 12 years old, and my parents rented The Exorcist. Me being a horror fan since a young age was pissed to the point of tears that my parents wouldn't let me watch it. So my mischievous ass snuck out of bed and quietly sat behind the couch that my parents were sitting on. They couldn't see me because I was behind them, and I was quiet like a ninja. Uh, I lasted about 20 minutes. <laughs> I came in right where Reagan started looking scratched up, and it shook me. I grew up in a religious household, a Christian household to be specific, uh, and uh, so seeing possession in such an extreme way truly fucked me up. I, I literally went the whole summer staying up all night with the light on in my room. My dad would come by and make me turn it off, uh, so then I'd resort to my flashlight. 
I would stay awake until everyone in my house was awake at like 7 a.m. Just so that I could go to sleep knowing that if something happened to me, that they were up and around. I couldn't sleep unless I felt that I had a layer of protection from my family. I was terrified. Um, another story. I was sleeping on the living room floor because uh, our house was hot. And uh, the only cool rooms were the living room and the kitchen due to the reach of the air conditioning. Well, uh, I was laying on the floor and I turned over and I looked at the ceiling and I saw shadows of tree branches. And I swear to God, I saw fucking Reagan's face in the shadows, like from the tree branches, like they made her face on the ceiling in my parents' living room. And I got up and ran to my room and I slept in my fucking hot ass room, uh, sweating bullets with the light on. Uh, it got to a point that my mom thought I might need a shrink. Uh, that's the only time that I think a movie actually traumatized me. I wouldn't say the exorcist scared me. It fucking scarred me. Um, but now I'm cool with it. Uh, I can take it. I met Linda Blair a few years ago and got an autograph on my Exorcist poster. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I hadn't seen The Exorcist at that early of an age. Um, I was I was a bit older when I first saw it, but it definitely messed with me. Uh, but I definitely know the first movie it really messed with me as a kid uh, was It. When the miniseries came out, I was about four, I believe, when it came out. And my dad let me watch it. I, I still don't like clowns to this day. I wouldn't say terrified, but for the longest time, I was absolutely terrified of clowns. I remember me and my mom were out on a walk, and I didn't want to walk too close to the storage or out to, to the drainage ditch because I didn't want Pennywise to be able to grab me from the sewer and pull me down. That movie, that movie was rough for a while. I had nightmares forever about it. Um, another movie that like really fucked me up, but not in like a scared way. I would say is the first time I saw The Last House on the Left. That was one of the first movies that I saw that afterwards I was like, I feel like I need a shower after watching this. Uh, it was just really, really gritty, and I hadn't seen anything that dark at that point. It's such a gritty and unforgiving movie. You just, if you don't know what you're getting into when you when you watch it, you're just not prepared. Uh, totally. Um, I, I I think the remake doesn't doesn't do it justice of the first time, but just seeing like that just grainy film. It was definitely, I feel like I might like it better than uh, any other Wes Craven movie. And uh, getting on to our second question here, Brian from Sandusky, Ohio, wants to know what our favorite horror soundtracks are and why everything is John Carpenter. Uh, I was trying to compile my list of my top five, and I got to be honest, uh, most of them are John Carpenter. I mean, Halloween, I still think, is... Is tops for me. Halloween three is also a great soundtrack. Uh, after that, I uh, to round out my top five. I'd probably say uh, Psycho's on there, uh, Alien, and one I don't usually see a lot, but I feel like the music really set the atmosphere for it. Is the original Nosferatu from nineteen twenty, I believe. Uh, well, I I love the Hellraiser soundtrack. Christopher Young killed it with that score. There's never a time that I'm not in the mood to hear it, honestly. It's just so big and broad. Uh, it hits the spot every time. Obviously, yeah, I love Carpenter. You know, the Christine soundtrack, the Halloween soundtrack, the Thing soundtrack. Anything he does is just gold. Uh, but my favorite film sound, my favorite horror film soundtrack of all time is Suspiria. Goblin's music is incredibly innovative, and it's creepy as shit with a heavy metal twist to it. It's barbaric, but beautiful, smooth, yet harsh. It creeps me out when I listen to it alone with no one around. So that's a winner to me. Um, 
So I would say the Hellraiser soundtrack, the Suspiria soundtrack, uh, to round out my top five, I'd say uh, Videodrome, the Videodrome score by Howard Shore, uh, the Trick or Treat 1986 soundtrack by Fastway, and uh, the Beyond, Lucio Fulci's The Beyond soundtrack by Fabio Frizzi 1981. Those would be my five. I'm, yeah, video, I mean, of all people, how the hell did I forget to have Videodrome on there? Uh, that's another solid one. And I mean, if you're not talking about original compositions and just uh, the actual soundtrack itself, I would probably cheat and go with Maximum Overdrive since it's just pure ACDC. Well, that's actually the case with me. Uh, the Trick or Treat 1986 soundtrack is actually just all songs by this band called Fastway. And uh, that band just apparently broke up, but they use all that band's music for that movie. So it's kind of a cheat, I guess, but that's in my top five. And for all you listeners out there, if you have any questions for us, reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook at HighOnHorror420 or email us at HighOnHorror420 at gmail.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter if you want the most up-to-date information on our podcast. And now it's time to get into our discussion slash review of the Malevolence Trilogy. The movie Malevolence starts in 1989 with the kidnapping of a six-year-old boy named Martin Bristol, who's forced to watch some brutal-ass murders at the hand of his captor. And then we jump to 1999, ten years later, where a group of friends plan to rob a bank and it goes sideways. Distrust runs heavy in the group, and as they argue, something is waiting in the shadows for them. Uh, I first watched the trailer with my sister back in 2005, uh, no one had heard of it back then, really, and I feel that me and my sister really found something special. The way that the trailer ends with all the bodies being taken out of the house and that ice-cold chill that the trailer gave uh, just shook us. Uh, sure enough, we found it in Blockbuster a few months later, and we rented the shit out of it. <laughs> uh, I-, I was 17 at the time, and I could see things that I liked about horror films in it, but it seemed new and almost dreadful, which meant, fuck yeah, let's do this. Uh, Since then, uh, I was a fan. I love the movie. The fact that it's a take on what could and probably does happen to some missing children is fucking sickening, and that's what causes the dread of watching it. It's a very heavy movie with a lot of homages to classic slashers in there, and the kills are quite gruesome. Uh, When me and you watched it, John, the other day, uh, I was counting... Uh, when uh, the killer Martin is like stabbing the one girl and uh, I'm, I'm fucking high as hell right now so I can't remember but it was a lot I think it was like 17 or 22 times or something like that like the kills in this movie are fucking brutal yeah and uh, you can definitely tell Steven Mena like us is a huge fan of the slasher genre uh, there's a lot of throwbacks to the other classics like we were saying uh you can see Halloween, you have uh, Sackhead Jason, which is also the same from uh, the town of Dreaded Sundown. And at the end, when they are taking the bodies out, as you were saying, uh, Kevin McKeevely, uh, who played uh, Agent Perkins, I feel like his delivery reading the uh, journal there at the end was really well done. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and uh, it's it's funny because it's that scene, it's such a small scene, but that scene is really important. That scene like ties everything together. Uh, him reading those ledgers 
all of a sudden ties everything together, kind of makes everything make a little bit more sense. But then there's still the fact that Martin Bristol's still out there. Yeah, um, and it was really interesting, the twist. Um, I mean, spoiler alert, you find out it's Martin at the end after he's been kidnapped and been forced to watch all these murders uh, at the hand of his captor. And uh, just watching him lurk around I was, was really good. And I thought the music was also well done. And uh, as I've told you, I'm a big fan of that uh, 70s and 80s uh, dark blues for night. And I feel like it was really captured very well in this. Yeah, it, it was. And uh, I, I agree. The, the mood of the film was what really sets the movie up. That's the thing. It's not just like oh, here's a jump scare, or I'm a slasher, so you know I'm going to come out of the corner and bam, slash you. Like This movie takes time to build up. The first part of the film, the I think it's like half hour, maybe 40 minutes of the film, is just a bank robbery. It's a, it's a build, the build up to a bank robbery and then the after effect of a bank robbery. And it's like when you're first watching the film, you almost forget that it's a horror film because it's, you know, midway through, just like, you know, midway through it just twists and it becomes a horror film and a slasher film and uh i think that you know the structure of the story is is really well is really well done and like you said the the mood the atmosphere with the coloring and the music absolutely yeah with the yeah with the first half like you were saying with the bank robbery it's kind of like uh point point break meets halloween is 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 almost like a good way to describe this movie that that's a really good way to describe the movie it's point break Minus the camaraderie, because nobody in this movie fucking likes each other. <laughs> no, they're... Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, and there's no point in which you think, oh, all these people are getting along. I think I even made a point to you when I was watching it that I said, you know, this is no way to go into a robbery. You guys are already arguing before you got there. Yeah, it was it was a shit show going in, so... Uh, and it just gets worse, you know, and... And uh, it's it's funny because it's just one of those things that you take for granted in life. Like, if all those assholes knew that, you know, what was going to come of them, maybe they wouldn't have fucking treated each other like that and they could have banded together. But instead, you know, they get picked off one by one because they have fucking egos. But, I mean, what else would you come to expect from a slasher movie? <laughs> and now with the second movie in the trilogy, Bereavement, we actually get a prequel and we get that story from 1989 about how Martin Bristol became the emotionless killer that we see in Malevolence. In bereavement, Allison Miller lives with her paternal uncle Jonathan after the death of her parents, and she goes out on a run and sees young Martin in the window of the farmhouse. The next day she returns to look for Martin, but she doesn't return home. The first thing that you're going to want to notice about bereavement uh, is the casting. Um, Malevolence was a great slasher film, is a great slasher film. The cast in that film, though, was mostly amateur actors, if they even were actors. There's, uh, Brandon Johnson, Samantha Dark, Richard Glover, uh, and Kevin McKelvey, as you had mentioned earlier, um, as well as Jay Cohen, who plays, you know, 17-year-old Martin Bristol. Uh, you know, the, they did a great job, um, but when we get to Bereavement, you know, we got Alexandra Daddario. Uh, Michael Bean, Peyton List, Nolan Gerard Funk, Spencer List, Rhett, Brett Rickaby, and uh, John Savage. So, I mean, you got to notice that right off the bat. Yeah, and this, uh, this was uh, one of Alexandra's first movies, and she does an amazing job with it. As you said, Michael Bean, he's always great. I, re I really thought that Brent Rickaby did an amazing job as Sutter in the film. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, as much as I like malevolence, as much as I hold it near and dear to my heart, I have to say that I find Bereavement to be a bit better. You know, it's a better film. Uh, it's more polished, but it's uh, better crafted as well. The scenery, the production quality, the acting, it upped the stakes from the first film. And uh, while it's not as much of a straight slasher as the first film, it's more story-driven, and it's deep and dark as fuck. This is the movie where we see what makes a child become a murderer. It's heavy shit. It's done well. It's entertaining, but it's also kind of hard to watch. I feel this one in my gut when I watch it. Uh, the character of Graham Sutter, played to perfection by Brett Rickerby, like you said. Uh, and, and again, he's a total dick. His actions are inexplicable, inexplicable uh, but there's psychology here. We get to see inside his head a bit and understand why he is the way he is. There's no excuse for his actions, but we can see what made him become such a piece of shit. And yes, uh, Alexandra Daddario being in the film does help me in my decision to pick this film over Malevolence, but that's not the sole reason, but her being in it doesn't hurt the film at all. Uh, yeah, and also adding in the fact that Martin, uh, I'm probably horribly going to mispronounce this, but it's a uh, congenial anaglesia. Does that, does that sound about right? But uh, yeah, he doesn't have the ability to feel pain, which actually, as horrible as Graham is, he's even worse because he doesn't feel any pain. He's just been around for Graham for so long that he doesn't have any emotions. And like you said, this isn't this isn't a slasher movie. It's more, and I think um, I think even Stevens kind of said it's kind of like um, uh, The Shining. It's more psychological. You just you have that feel of dread. And I did like in that there was more backstory added, especially with the whole, uh, the bull skeletons. Mm -hmm. I feel like that really added to it. Uh, yeah, I agree. And, um, like you said about, you know, the whole thing with, uh, with Martin, you know, uh, and the thing is, you know, hopefully you, you, everybody who's listening has seen these movies or seen this movie because, you know, like we're not holding back here, but, uh, uh, in the end, you know, you find out that, you know, after, you know, Allison's trying to help Martin, you know, the whole, basically, like, through, like, the whole half of the, like, second half of the film, um, that, like, you know, in the end, he had no motivation to help anyone. Uh, he, he was too far gone by that point, and all he knew was violence. Yeah, that, that was, it's not, it's not a happy ending in any way in this movie, and, and the whole time you know that who Martin's gonna become, and Alexandra's character, Allison, um, you just always know the whole time this this isn't going to end well for her, no matter how much she's trying to help this kid. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. And then, uh, yeah, this with this being an actual prequel, uh, we'll get into the third movie here, uh, Killer, and that one actually picks up right after the first one. The third film in the trilogy is Malevolence Three Killer, and Stephen Men I think summed up the movie best on IMDb. Martin Bristol returns to where it all began, the home where he was kidnapped from, but he's not the same boy who disappeared over ten years ago. Tortured and abused at the hands of his psychotic captor, Graham Sutter, Martin is damaged beyond repair. Lurking in the shadows of suburbia, he stalks and kills without remorse. Special Agent William Perkins follows Martin's trail of terror, desperate to capture him before he kills again. Martin's family has been mourning his disappearance for over 10 years, and now they're informed that not only is he alive, but that he is responsible for the wave of murder sweeping through their town. 
Will they be able to reunite with their long-lost son before it's too late? Or will Perkins have to use excessive force to bring him down? I uh, I, I really like Killer, man. Killer's a really good movie. Um, it, It's so close to really judge these movies because they're so different. Uh, One is so different from the next, which is so different from the next. They're all just different chapters in, a, in, a, in, in one story. Um, You know, it's, uh, it's like when, when, when I'm picking them or trying to put them in an order, it's not like you know, one, two, and three, like, it's like, that's almost dividing them, you know, too much. It's like, when I have to pick them, it's like one A, one B, one C, you know, they're all so close together. I want to say that this is like my least favorite, but in saying that, it's not saying it's a bad movie. Like I said, it's more just like one C. It's, uh, there might be some days when I prefer it over the others, but just, you know, as a whole, I, uh, I like the first two more, but three is a really good film. Yeah, I like three as well. Uh, I thought Katie Gibson as Ellie, or I'm sorry, Elle, uh, did an amazing job here. And I I think the first one, I feel like it had more more of a Friday the 13th type feel, uh, especially with the sack uh, head. Um, I feel like this one felt like more of a Halloween movie. And I feel like uh, Jay Cohen did an amazing job as just kind of lurking in the shadows and he he definitely definitely pulled off that Michael Myers type vibe. Uh, yeah, I I agree. He definitely did, and and, uh, and let's not forget, you know, uh, Adrian Barbeau's in it, you know, and that's a great thing. You know, I love Adrian Barbeau. You know, whenever she's in anything, that's always a good thing. Um, she brought a great performance to the movie, and uh, let's talk about the kills, dude. The kills are solid, you know, but uh, uh, the kills are solid, are they not? I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I would agree. Uh. I'll talk about this uh, probably later with Steven, but uh, the, this uh, film definitely has my favorite kill in the entire trilogy. Yeah, I, I know what it is. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, the one thing, though, is that this film did leave me with wanting more. Uh, it does end with a little bit of a cliffhanger, you know, with Martin get away, getting away and driving off. So it definitely, uh, it definitely leaves me with the hope that there will be more, that, you know, Martin's story continues because... Uh, I, I like knowing that he's out there, but it also leaves me with wanting more. Yeah, I mean, there's there's clearly room where you could uh, expand to do more movies here, but I feel like uh, this was a solid final entry in the trilogy. Um, and as you said, he does escape, so it's kind of has has again that Michael Myers feel. He's he's out there somewhere, but as for just having these three films, I feel like it's solid just to leave it at this. Yeah, um, and the thing, I mean, I could see that too. If it, if it is left at this, I'm happy with it, you know, but the thing about Killer is that uh, this one is just a balls-to-the-wall stalk and slash and repeat, and how the fuck can you not like that? Oh, yeah, the body count was definitely turned up for this one. And I have to say, uh, this film, as well as the other two, um, they're well-acted. This, this one doesn't maybe have the same... Um, star power that you think of when you hear the names from the previous one but the acting's just as good in it again uh kevin mckelvey i think he does an amazing job i know some people aren't a fan of of his uh, uh delivery style with his acting but i i thought it was really well done none of the acting in any of the film bothers me or any of the films bother me i think that uh everybody did their part you know the acting never bothered me in any of the films uh 
if anything, I think the acting was pretty was pretty damn well done, especially considering all the other indie shit that we watched with like really bad acting. I don't think that Malevolence or any of the films really fall into that category. I think like Wrong Turn and Wrong Turn Two and Wrong Turn Three. I think they all had much worse acting than what you see in the Malevolence films. Yeah, and again, the uh, the cinematography in this is beautiful, and uh, as as well, the uh, scoring is always well done. Um, I don't think anybody can find any complaints with, with the cinematography or scoring. Sure. You can have problems with that. You don't like some of the acting or, uh, you're not a fan of the story, but I think that's the two things uh, you can't take away from any of these movies. But let's just be clear about something. And I'm sure I'll talk about this with Steven later, but, uh, who the fuck doesn't like a horror film or a slasher film with bad acting since that when did that become something it's just one of these new things where people try to criticize everything and it's like i'm not saying it's okay to have bad acting i'm just saying everybody has all this forgiveness for shit but then like you know when a new movie comes out it's like oh my god you know it sucks but it's like what's your favorite movie fucking you know street trash like some like you know body melt you know, so I mean, I like those movies as well, but I'm just saying, you know, like those movies, you know, are very much just kind of like exploitation trash cinema. So I'm like a lot of people just like to criticize something to criticize it. And I also think a lot of times people uh, use those rose colored glasses. I mean, Halloween's our favorite horror movie, but so some of the, some of the line delivery in that is not the best. I mean, and, and that's, I mean, that's any of the movies. I feel like people just, uh, they think whatever movie they liked when they were a kid growing up is one of the greatest horror movies, and you can't criticize it, even though you see the same problems maybe in another film the same way, but then they won't be as forgiving towards that. Yeah, I don't see how you can watch uh, movies like Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, or the Hatchet films and see the production value or the acting in those films and like those films, but say you don't like things about Malevolence. Like, it's right up there, and it's, I don't know if it's an East Coast thing or what, but for some reason the Malevolence films are so overlooked, but they really need to be, like, up there. They need to be mentioned more. They need to be in your face more. They need to be, like, on top ten lists more. Like, they belong. Like, I don't know why these movies are, like, hidden under a rock, it seems, but, like, you know, uh, I just, I really think these movies deserve a lot more recognition than what they get. I totally agree with you, and I, I don't think there's too much more we can really say say about the Malevolence trilogy, so it's time to get on to Burn and Learn. Oh. Hmm. Burn and Learn. We'll start with Malevolence. The statistics in the opening of the film are accurate, or were accurate at the time of this film in the early 2000s, and that's absolutely heartbreaking. The statistics uh, that I'm referring to mean the statistics of the missing children. Malevolence was always the middle part of a trilogy, but the only part that could be filmed on such a small budget, so they filmed it first and told the story out of chronological order. The actors had to hold their breath so that you couldn't see their breath because it was so cold. The movie was supposed to take place in September, but they were filming in January and it was freezing. The bank robbery was filmed in downtown Allentown, Pennsylvania. The ledgers that you see at the end of the film are from the 30s and 40s and are full of real writings depicting animal slaughters. Malevolence took two years to film. Malevolence was shot on 35mm film. A picture of the bank robbery appeared in the newspaper in Allentown, PA, because some people thought it was a real robbery. Now let's do bereavement. Graham Sutter's dad forced him to kill animals on the farm and taught him that they have no feelings. That's what fucked him up, and that's why he treats people people like cattle. 
The house that they burned down at the end of the film, the exterior shot is a scaled-down model that they burned in the middle of a field. Here's a pretty interesting one. Uh, legendary actor John Savage, who plays Ted, apparently has no recollection of filming this movie. The bull represents our sins haunting us. Alexandra Daddario and Nolan Gerard Funk had a crush on each other during filming. Now let's get into Malevolence 3, Killer. Stephen Mena's daughter, Victoria Mena, makes her acting debut as Victoria. Besides playing a ghost in a deleted scene for bereavement, actress Katie Gibson never acted before. This was Stephen's first time filming digital. The previous two entries were on actual film. A store clerk actually thought that actor Jay Cohen was Norman Reedus. And now it's time to get into our interview with Malevolence Trilogy mastermind Stephen Mena. Like us, Stephen Mena is an East Coast boy. He's the director and mastermind behind the Malevolence Trilogy, which we're huge fans of, as well as Brutal Massacre, a comedy starring an American Werewolf in London alumni, David Naughton. He's also written the horror novel, Transients, which has been compared to the works of James Patterson. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for joining us on High on Horror. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, Stephen. Um, so first question uh, about the original Malevolence film. Um, to me... Uh, the original Malevolence is straight guerrilla filmmaking. You had so many things go wrong during the filming. You guys got scammed into renting a house that got foreclosed on. You got locked up, had to repair the house, lost thousands of dollars, lost weeks of production, uh, were left in the middle of principal photography with no filming location. Someone acted like they were part of your crew and stole $200, and there's more. Plus, the movie took two years to make. You had so many issues during the making of this film that you yourself said at one point that you actually believed that it wouldn't get made. Here we are. 17 years later how does it feel to have finished it and uh, the following that it has Gunnar Hansen himself said it scared him that in and of itself has to be rewarding uh well let me take a moment to uh, remove the blade from my wrist after that uh <laughs> recap of, of everything that that I went through but uh yeah man I mean it, it's actually really kind of uh surreal how this movie has come full circle because when when we first started out uh, the movie didn't get any love at all. And um, I mean, actually, that's not true. Actually, in the beginning, when we finished it, it got a lot of love. And then we we actually did a, a big screening out in Los Angeles. And somebody from a site called Ain't It Cool News actually snuck in and attended it and then wrote this like scathing review. And we had a huge deal that we had worked out with Columbia for a, a nationwide rollout of this film in theaters. And when they read the review at that time, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember way back when, but like in 2002, Ain't It Cool News, like basically if they said something about your film, it could either make it go, you know, to the top of the box office or kill it instantly. Um, and there was always like, you know, re stories of people like bribing these guys, you know, to get good reviews, stuff like that. Anyway, this nasty review uh, kind of killed our movie and Columbia pulled the deal uh, before it even happened. And, um, and so after that, the movie just kind of, you know, almost disintegrated to nothing until we ended up winning a festival here in my hometown of Long Island, uh, which is uh, the Long Island International Film Expo. And that expo is usually like mostly dramatic type films. It, it's really not a horror convention or, you know, a horror uh, festival. Uh, so the fact that we won that got us a lot of recognition. And that's when Anchor Bay stepped forward and picked up the film and kind of the rest was history because they did an amazing job uh, releasing it. It actually became their highest selling 
DVD title of all time in their li- entire library of oh, like wow. 3,500 titles. So yeah, so it was it was a huge hit, and um, and it's allowed me to you know continue to to make films. Um, so you know we definitely never thought the film would be finished. I mean, when we started the film. Uh, we had about $50,000 to make it. And that's back in, you know, in the early 2000s when everything was shot on film and, uh, you know, shooting on 35 millimeter was, was really, really tough. We had to do everything in just one take, you know, and I sometimes laugh at people who, you know, you know, knock the acting of the film, you know, because of the no name actors. But when you consider that these guys, for the most part, didn't have any acting experience at all, they just believed in the project. They weren't getting paid. And the fact that I think they what they, they did what they did in in you know one take uh, at a time you know for each scene uh, I, I think it's actually miraculous what they pulled off. Um, so I always laugh when people knock the film for its acting because if they actually knew you know what went into um, you know the sacrifices we made to to make the film, I don't think they would. Look, I think they look at it in in a different light. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely an amazing feeling to to look back now and it's kind of almost uh, unbelievable that, that we actually did get that movie finished. Yeah. You know, it's really funny because uh, the acting never bothered me. Um, me and my sister have been fans of the film since like 2005 or six when we were able to see, uh, run it at Blockbuster. And uh, it's funny that you say that about the acting because it never bothered me. And something that's really funny is that this movie is like, pays a lot of homages to other horror films and slasher films. And in a lot of those movies, there's terrible acting. So it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you're criticizing something just because it's new, basically. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that actually really mystified me when this film came out. A lot of the bad reviews were from horror sites, and I always thought to myself, you know, here's a film that totally caters to your clientele. Why are you knocking this film? It's a film that was made from nothing. It's totally grassroots, and, and you're treating it like it was a studio film that had $20 million behind it. And I, I never quite understood, you know, the hate that the film got in the beginning, but then over time, uh, it, that has completely changed. I mean, now today I get nothing but praise for, for this film all over the world. You know, I get emails from all over the place, people who've, you know, whether they watched it legally, illegally, whatever, you know, they've watched it in Japan and, you know, they've watched it in Australia and I get emails all the time saying, you know, what, what an influential film it was for them. I've seen it get onto like, you know, top 10 lists all over the place. And, and, and it's, it's really cool to see that, you know, in retrospect, thinking about how it was, you know, received in the beginning, um, it's, it's really nice to see it come full circle. Yeah, that's, that is awesome, you know, and to know that all the work, you know, that you guys went through and all the struggles that you went through, you know, freaking paid off, you know, and it has a following and, you know, people appreciate it and you appreciate it. So that's amazing. Um, uh, I just, I have a question real quick. Um, so, uh, the mask, um, that the killer wears that, uh, old Mart or older Martin Bristol wears in the film, um, uh, did actor Jay Cohen have trouble seeing through those eye holes? Like those slits are so narrow. Um, yeah, it's funny you mention that because Jay Cohen, uh, even though he's revealed as the killer at the end, throughout the entire film, it was actually um, uh, another actor, um, uh, the guy who plays Kurt, Richard Glover, who was actually in the uh, the mask the entire time. He was a much more physical actor, and um, he did. Yes, he did actually have terrible a terrible time seeing through that mask in fact there's a scene where he's stabbing marilyn and uh, i cut to him like shaking his head and you know when you watch the film you think like oh he's doing that because he's crazy but he was doing that because he couldn't see and he was trying to shake the holes in front of his eyes so he could see again because he couldn't uh, he couldn't touch the mask because his hands were covered in blood 
Um, so that always cracks me up. But yeah, he, he had a really tough time seeing out of it. But I, I, I designed the mask that way because um, the original design had these two circles cut out, but you could see his eyes. And, you know, if you see the killer's eyes, then you feel like you can reason with that person. And it's like it humanizes him. So I wanted it to be, you know, a completely unreasonable figure that was stalking them. So that's why we had to keep it, you know, that way. Um, and that always cracks me up too when I see like a lot of the slasher films that have come out recently, a lot of the Halloween remakes where you can clearly see the killer's eyes, and you know, clearly those directors just don't understand, you know, why those films work. Yeah, I, I agree, and I actually now that I asked you that question, I'm glad because I really like that answer. That makes a lot of sense, and that does add that like sense of inhumanity to you know the character. Absolutely, I never thought of it like that. Um, uh, the, uh, something else I wanted to ask you was that uh. Uh, you said that Scream picking apart uh, horror films and why they're cliche made you want to make a horror film with the things in it that made you like horror, uh, not a wink and eye or make fun of it, but do a serious movie tipping your hat, so to speak, to the genre. You had several homages in the film. Uh, the Killer's Mask is obviously the town that dreaded sundown in Friday 2. The walk-in music is a nod towards Michael and Halloween. Uh, is the fact that Martin never finds the money that the bank robber stole a nod to Norman Bates not finding the money Marion Crane stole in Psycho? Yeah, it, it actually it actually is not, but that's a very good uh, analogy. Um, the, really, the all the films that we 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 kind of uh, you know tried to pay homage to was was Halloween certainly. Uh, the color the colors that we painted inside the slaughterhouse were reminiscent of uh, the sweater from Freddy Krueger. Um, certainly, the the you know the outfit that he was wearing was an homage to Michael Myers, and the mask was an homage to Friday the Thirteenth, and the setting was an homage to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was a lot of um, uh, not only just the the setting and the location, but also just some of the tonal music that I used was was a, a big homage to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there's even uh, a shot of the van coming up over the hill, which was a direct homage to the van shot in in Texas right before they get to the house. And and what was really cool is that uh, Gunner noticed that when when we first met, he actually um, requested to come and and meet with me at the premiere in Worcester um, because he liked the film so much. It wasn't that we invited him. He invited himself. And uh, I thought that was really cool. And he actually got up in front of the crowd um, and gave a speech before the movie started, you know, basically, you know, talking about how this film affected him and how much he liked it and, and how it was not like this postmodern, you know, wink at the camera. It was, it was much more serious and it, and it took, and it, you know, it didn't insult its audience. It took the, the, the material seriously. And, um, I was so touched by that, that I said to him, I said, you know, we absolutely have to work together on a movie someday. So I was really happy that I got to cast him in, uh, in Brutal Massacre. But yeah, those, those are really, those are all great. And then there is an homage to Psycho. Uh, that's why I wanted to, to mention that because uh, I'm glad you brought that up because the homage to Psycho is actually the story structure um, where for 30 minutes you, you feel like you're in this action movie and then it gets turned on its head and becomes a horror film. Um, so that was the influence we took from Psycho was the actual structure of the script. But that's a good call with the money. Um, I'm a real huge fan of the dark blues that were used uh, for night shots in the 70s and 80s. And uh, you used them in your movie. Uh, was that another direct nod to Halloween? Uh, yes. Dean Cundy was clearly a huge influence in the aesthetic of the film. Um, I actually uh, searched uh, for a long time to find a cinematographer that was willing to uh, utilize those hues in the in the evening scenes because most uh, cinematographers at that point thought that it was kind of dated. 
you know, like James Cameron was kind of the last person to to use it in T2, and they just all felt that it had been done. Um, and I explained to them why I was doing it and why it was like this homage to 80s style. And uh, and really, a lot of them just didn't want to do it. But I finally met this guy, uh, Tiyoshi Komodo, um, who totally got it and, uh, and, and really nailed it. Um, and, uh, you know, so, um, it was really, you know, I, I, I think looking back, um, it really kind of sets a, 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 an excellent mood for that film too, as far as making it feel like, like a period piece, you know, it really does make you feel like you're watching an old eighties classic. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I think the blues are the best, best for night scenes. And, uh, with all the homages to the other slasher movies, who is your favorite slasher? Um, I mean, as for whenever I think of slasher, I think of Michael Myers, right? So I think if you were asking me who's my favorite slasher villain, it would be Michael Myers. But it's a close tie with uh, Cropsey from The Burning. Um, the only reason Michael Myers wins is because you know the film is just just too good to ignore. Um, but I but I think from a, from a vicious standpoint, from a just a cool, creepy um mysterious uh and stylistic uh stylistic choice i think cropsy was just such a cool villain and um and i just love the way uh you know uh tom savini uh pulled off a lot of the kills in that film and it's, it's what's really amazing is uh the unedited version uh wasn't available until recently so i had been watching you know the cut version for so long when i saw the unedited blu-ray i was like wow what a difference there's so much that was left on the floor for to get the r rating yeah, uh, the burning's a good choice. Uh, Drew, I can speak for both of us. We would definitely pick Michael as our favorite slasher. And uh, I, with the film here, you explored nature versus nurture as it related to serial killers. Uh, where did that idea originate from? Um, I always wanted to have a deeper exploration for the material. Um, it's kind of why when you watch the sequel, uh, bereavement, uh, I, I dive even deeper into it and, and, you know, with, with the, with SEPA and with the uh, genetic disease that he has that prevents him from feeling pain. And, um, you know, I really wanted to, you know, pose that question of, you know, are we born serial killers or are we made that way, you know, based on our, on, on our environment, you know, uh, you know, if you take any kid and put them in that situation, you know, how would that turn out? Um, and I think that's a really interesting supposition. Like it's really, it's really cool to kind of, you know, look at it from that standpoint and say like, you know, is this person born bad? You know, would they always have ended up like this or did something happen to them to turn them towards evil, you know? And it's like, and is it inherently evil, uh, or is it, they just don't understand or grasp the concept of evil, like, you know, right or wrong and, and, and the difference. So yeah, it was always a a conscious effort to kind of explore that in the material. And, um, and I think when you do that, it, it, it just makes it more interesting. You know, I mean, I think I also am a big fan of not telling too much and keeping everything mysterious because I think once you expose all the reasons why it's not as scary, um, but I think we kind of straddled the line with, with, with malevolence because I don't really give too much away about the killer. But at the same time, you know, there is that underlying motif of, you know, nature versus nurture that just takes it. I think it elevates the material a little bit more than just your standard, you know, kids having sex and doing drugs and being off, you know, like 10 little Indians. 
Yeah, and I feel like we really got more of that in the second movie, Bereavement. And I've read that the original cut of the film for that was over three hours. Uh, did Crimson Films make you cut down the length? Uh, is there any chance we can get that get that edition in the future? Um, it's not something I think anybody would appreciate, and I'll tell you why. Because um, Bereavement was based on a big chunk of a novel that I wrote, where the, the all three films were, were were basically pieces of a novel that I wrote, and Bereavement was the biggest part. And we shot a lot of stuff that is, I think, great on paper, but not good on camera. And so um, there was a lot of, uh, and, and if you watch the deleted scenes on the on the Blu-ray, you'll see there's a lot of interaction between, for example, like uh, the, the, the kid, uh, Billy, and his dad um, that didn't make the actual film. Because I thought that, you know, that B plot was kind of pulling away uh, and uh, taking away from from the A story, which was Sutter and 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 Martin. Um, what I was really going for there is, you know, it's 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 a lot of layering in that story. Um, and basically, the the theme throughout is being trapped. Like Martin is trapped by Sutter and by his illness. Uh, Sutter is trapped by his you know diseased mind and his feeling of the need for uh, you know absolution for all the sins that he's committed because of what he was indoctrinated into by his dad, by being forced as an animal lover, being forced to work in a slaughterhouse. Um, and then, you know, uh, Billy was uh, trapped by his dad. You know, he's, he's stuck taking care of his dad in, in the wheelchair. And then Allison was trapped because her parents died and she was stuck, you know, basically moved to this, uh, you know, one horse town in Pennsylvania uh, from a big city and, uh, you know, forced to live with uh, with her uncle, who she barely knows. So that was a theme of being trapped that was, you know, layered in throughout the entire story. And and I explored that a lot with the sub characters. But in the end, it, it was a little too much. And it, it was I think it just distracted from from the main core of the story. And that's why I cut it down to two hours from from three. And I think three hours is actually kind of an uh, 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 an exaggeration. I think it was probably closer to about two hours and 40 minutes. Um, but, uh, you know, somebody just rounded up that number and it became legend as three hours. It's, it's really about it's about 40 minutes that got cut from the film. And and it's nothing that I think anybody would would miss or, you know, uh, I, could, I could name a couple of different scenes like there's. The, the when they talk about uh, William's mother uh, killing herself, I had a whole sequence of her actually killing herself, of William finding her body hanging in um, in the barn. And if you if you search uh, YouTube, there's actually a trailer um, uh, that has a lot of that footage, including the woman hanging in the barn uh, in that trailer. Um, it's really really obscure. Like I don't, I wouldn't even know where to point you to find it, but it is still out there, um, and it has a lot of that footage that uh, was never released. And uh, Chase, uh, who played the six-year-old Martin, he did a really good job. Uh, how was he with filming? Did he ever become scared at any point on set? Um, you know what? I think there was a there was a point where it got a little intense, and um, and we had to take a break. But for the most part, he was really game. And I I don't. The thing is, when you're on set, there's so many people and there's so much going on that. You don't realize it, it. It takes the perspective away. You don't realize what you're actually doing, how it actually looks. So even though you see this guy, uh, you know, stabbing this girl, what you don't see when you're watching the movie is, you know, 
the the sound guy in the corner and the makeup person in the corner and the guy with the clapstick and the director behind you and you know everybody you know yelling and screaming and and and, and you know cut and you know roll sound and all these other uh things that are going on simultaneously that it diminishes the effect so when you're there it, it doesn't really seem so scary it's only when you see it cut together with music and sound effects and and all that other extraneous stuff you know filtered out that you're like holy shit what did we just do you know look at this this is terrifying but 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 in the moment it's it's a lot of fun you know it's it's really not as scary as you think and i think he had more fun than anything and uh, Spencer List, who also played Martin, uh, you actually had his twin sister, Peyton, in the movie as well, playing Wendy Miller. Uh, how did you end up with both of the twins in the movie? Um, that was a result of my casting agent. She brought them in. Uh, you know, they were complete unknowns, and um, I had seen a video of them and asked to read with them. And and when I met them, I knew instantly uh, that they were perfect. And what was also great about them is the fact that they were brother and sister meant that their handlers would be together, like the mother and father would be basically be on set, and it would be the same parents. So um, it, it just it took away uh, a huge chunk of 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 logistics to have the same parents for both kids. So it really made it easy. Um, and I'm so glad we did because, uh, especially with Peyton, I know they've both gone on to do great things, but Peyton especially has gone on to become a monster star. I mean, she's got like uh, 15 million followers on Instagram. She's a huge Disney star. She's in, she's, uh, uh, I think she's in the new, uh, you know, uh, Cobra Kai spinoff from the Karate Kid on Netflix. And um, she's done, you know, a bunch of Disney shows. I, my kids are, you know, fanatics about her. And, you know, they think I'm the coolest because I worked with her. So, you know, <laughs> so that tells you everything. Um, if they have new feelings, they can't know fear. But if they can't know fear, then why do they run? Amazing line. Where did you come up with that? Um, just something that occurred to me when I was, when I was writing the book and, um, it's something that I was taught, uh, when I was a young kid, um, I'm also a huge animal lover and, um, I would often ask about things like, you know, uh, when people go hunting or when they go fishing, you know, do these animals feel pain? And I was always taught, you know, you know, they're animals, they're dumb, they don't feel pain, but, you know, it always occurred to me, you know, when I hear stories of, of cattle that, you know, escape from the slaughterhouse and run for their lives and are willing to break their legs uh, to, to get away. And when I hear stories about the fact that they used to have to cut their hind legs to keep them from running, well, I th you know, it, it occurs to me if, if they're so, you know, intent on leaving, they must be scared. And, you know, pain scares anybody, whether you're a dumb animal or an intelligent human being. So to me, I think everything feels fear. So it was always like, you know, that that um, that thought like um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the contradiction. Right. Of, you know, if if you if, if, if it has no feelings, then then why does it have then why does it run if it if it can't feel fear? Um, and I think it makes sense, you know, and I think a lot of uh, people who, you know, who do abuse animals or hunt animals, you know, they, they don't think about those things. Um, and they just assume that animals, you know, are, are dumb and, 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 and feelingless. And, and that's definitely not the case. And anybody who spent a significant amount of time with animals will know that, you know, they feel fear, they feel anxiety, they certainly feel love. Um, and, and that's kind of the point I was trying to drive home uh, with that is that contradiction is what drives the the 
frustration and the desire for absolution in Sutter, you know, because it was always the thought that was running through his head because that's essentially what his dad would say to him. His dad would say, you know, just, you know, we're killing them, but they don't have feelings, you know, so they, they don't, they don't, uh, you know, you don't need to feel sorry for them. And, and so that was the thought that occurred to him, you know, if, if they have no feelings, uh, they can't no fear. If they can't no fear, then why do they run? That's where that came from. Okay, I love that. Um, uh, well, you said that Bereavement was a film about what makes a killer a killer. And I have to say personally that I think I like Bereavement just a hair more than Malevolence due to the emotional nature of it. It's not as gritty as Malevolence. I like the grittiness Malevolence has. Um, but you're dealing with a kid in Bereavement, so there's more concern and dread going into this one. Uh, you knew it wasn't going to be a straight slasher, but a story-oriented film. The two kills in Bereavement that fuck me up the most are when Martin is holding the legs of the victim and Sutter stabs her, and the blood pours onto Martin, kind of baptizing him, if you will. And then the kill in which Allison uh, watches William get killed in front of her while she's confined in the freezer and can't help him. You did a good amount of character development just to kill uh, him off like that in such a brutal way. You wrote these scenes. Which scene do you find more disturbing? Uh, Sutter's death is absolutely the most brutal, and uh, but it's the least poignant, because fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, so you're asking me, like, which scene do I find the most disturbing uh, as far as the kills in Bereavement? Yes. Um, for, for me, it's definitely the hook through the leg and wheeled into fire uh, for, for the, the young girl who um, has the fight with Sutter inside the slaughterhouse and tries to escape. Um, and the reason being is because I know how that kill was inspired. And that was inspired because where we shot the film was originally an actual slaughterhouse uh, that operated from like 1910 to 1975. Um, so everything you see in that place is real. All the hooks and, and, and pulleys, everything is real, including the pulley that we used to uh, wheel her into the furnace. And the furnace was real. Um, we had to get these things you know, activated to work again and to work in a way that was not specifically real, but looked real. Um, but essentially, when I was uh, meeting with the owner, who was very, very generous to us, he walked us through something called the pig tumbler. And basically what that was is they would uh, lead the pigs in on this ramp, and then one by one, they would come into this holding station. And then the holding station had like this garage door that they would, on a pulley, pull up really fast and at the same time tilt the floor so the pig would basically um, tumble onto the, you know, this area where they would, uh, you know, hook it by its uh, hind leg, just like we do to the girl, hoist it up, and then they would cut its throat, and then at the same time, peel its skin off with this machine. And then the pig would basically be put into this tumbler that would, you know, essentially, you know, eviscerate it, like just rip it apart. And hearing this guy detail this process in such a nonchalant, you know, uncaring way like it was just you know an everyday thing that they just you know slaughtered these animals in such a brutal and vicious way um like you know like it was nothing and it just it really it really sunk into me what it must take to be uh you know someone who worked on the line at one of these places um they actually had a, a creek uh, of water, like this little river that would run through down the mountain where this place was built and would run through the center of the slaughterhouse. And they had these cracks in the floor. And I asked them, I'm like, what is that for? Because it runs throughout the entire place. And they said that, you know, 
there was so much blood that they would use these huge uh, brushes and they would just like basically mop the, the, the blood towards these cracks in the floor and it would filter into the, the, the river and then it would just, you know, run right out. And, and people would say, locals would say that, you know, uh, at the height of the operation of that place, every evening around, you know, four o'clock, the river would turn red with blood. Um, and we actually shot a scene, another thing that got cut from the movie, where you actually see the slaughterhouse and we pan down to the river coming through it. Uh, and it was, you know, basically blood red. But we could never put enough blood, fake blood, into the river to make it look the way they describe, you know, because the way they describe it, it sounds like something out of the Ten Commandments. So um, it was just horrific. So that whole story uh, of the pig tumbler. Uh, inspired that scene. So we basically put that girl, you know, obviously we didn't peel her skin off, but we put that girl through most of what the pig went through. And, um, and watching that now, it, it even to, you know, 10 years later, watching that scene, it still gets me um, just, just how brutal it is. I, I really thought that, um, you know, I, I would uh, take some heat for that scene because it was so vicious. But for the most part, uh, most people don't really even cite that as the most vicious scene in the movie. As you mentioned, you know, the scene where he's holding the, the, the woman's legs and then, of course, uh, the scene uh, with, with William, uh, they're all equally brutal. Um, but that's just the kind of the, the, the flavor of that film. I mean, it's not a happy film. That's a film that you kind of endure. I don't know if, you know, obviously it's an enjoyable movie in some respects, but it's something that you kind of endure and, and get through. And I really wanted it to, to have an impact, you know, I, I, obnoxiously, I really thought that we had made like the star Wars of horror films when we finished that movie. Um, and, and, but I think, uh, you know, in our hubris, what we failed to realize is in any film, uh, no matter how much of a home run you've hit with any movie uh, and how much you cater to, to a specific audience, in the end, everybody kind of wants to feel uh, that that sort of like not necessarily happy ending, but they want to feel some sort of like hope. Uh, and not, you know, nihilism at the end of your movie. And so I think by killing off Allison, it serves the story because, you know, obviously there can't be any survivors. Otherwise, that place would have been found out and the original story would never have been able to take place. But I think had I ended it uh, with an alternate ending where Allison actually escapes with the boy and reunites the boy, Martin, with the mom at the end of that movie, I think we would have had a, a much bigger hit. Um, but I stayed true to my guns. I really wanted it to have a dark, you know, Empire Strikes Back kind of ending. And uh, and I think it definitely succeeds. You know, you definitely feel gutted at the end of that movie. But it unfortunately limited the audience because of that. However, now in retrospective, 10 years later, the film has found a whole new audience that really likes the movie because it pulls no punches. Uh, and I get a lot of praise because we took a chance and really have this insanely fucked up ending. Um, and a lot of people really, you know, find the film as like, like kind of like a classic now because we didn't go for the Hollywood ending. And so I'm kind of glad, you know, looking back, even though the film wasn't as big of a hit as it could have been, I think the fact that it stands on its own as kind of like a, a like a landmark horror film for a lot of people, uh, it makes it all worth it. You know, sometimes it's not about the money, it's about the art. And in that case, it was definitely about the art. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely, you know, 
agree i like movies you know i personally prefer movies where you know the bad guy gets away at the end you know i'm a huge halloween fan you know michael myers that kind of broke the mold usually you get the bad guy in that movie they didn't get the bad guy i don't know if you're uh, familiar with the 2007 french film uh inside that's another brutal example of where like the uh the the villain just gets away uh so yeah you know i i'm happy that bereavement went the way it did because i like i like my horror being dark and dreary i like it being nice and heavy and that's you know exactly what bereavement is it's a very heavy watch it's not something that you just sit back kick your feet up to it's something that you're just like you know like i gotta and i and, and i appreciate that yeah, it's definitely not a first date film. <laughs> All right, well, um, going back to uh, Martin uh, and uh, with uh, Sipa, um, we watch as he becomes, uh, your quote, too far gone, all he knows is violence, end quote. Sutter imprints his fears and disgusting habits onto Martin and makes Martin an even scarier and violent and brutal person because of his lack of feeling and empathy. The bull represents uh, our sins haunting us, and Sutter scares Martin into not leaving the house by threatening him with the dummies of the bull figure in the yard uh can you explain the psychology behind that i know you kind of went into it earlier but like did you do any research on child traumas or anything for the character of martin yeah i actually did a lot of research i actually am a, a student of psychology so i did do a lot of research into that and um uh y- your question has a, a kind of like a, a bunch of different uh points so i'm not sure which one you want me to address but with regards to like the the bull skulls um yeah, that was essentially Sutter had set those up to kind of prevent him uh, from escaping. He, he, you know, makes the kid think that they're actually real and they will attack him. So, you know, it, it's kind of like a way to like a deterrent to, to get the kid from from, you know, from running away, which I think, um, you know, is is done effectively in, in the film. I would have liked it to be a little bit more animated, but we didn't have the budget for that. Um but uh, because we, I did try to do a dream sequence um, where the the bull chases him down down the hill. Um, but in the dream sequence, uh, it didn't quite come off the way I wanted. So um, we just went with the head turn, which actually I thought was was even more effective. Sometimes less is more. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and the psychology of it all, uh, there there is a lot you know going on there. I mean, essentially, uh, the bull skull represents the guilt that Sutter feels for all the atrocities that he believes he he committed against these animals. And every time he murders a person, it's like he's you know righting a wrong, so to speak. Um, and um, you know, so he he feels like he's on this mission, uh, and these these. Uh, these animals, these souls of these animals are in his head. You know, the whole thing is in his head, obviously, but, you know, he's basically getting retribution uh, for all of his sins. Um, and Martin is, is, is he brings Martin in because he feels guilty about what he's doing. And so the, the, the essential reason that Martin is there in the beginning is to clean up. Uh, he wants him to clean up the mess. And there's a scene where he gives a little speech to Martin about how he envies his serenity and all that sort of thing. And then you see Martin, you know, using the brush to kind of clean off the blood. And that was to try and establish, you know, why Martin is actually there. But it also, it, it, it balloons because Sutter doesn't know he has SIPA. So when Sutter cuts him and he doesn't respond, he thinks it, it basically validates what his dad told him, you know, that, you know, they, they don't feel anything. So he's confused. And this boy becomes this focal point for his confusion. That's why he says that he re- repeats that saying when Martin is around, because he's essentially talking about Martin and equating him to the animals. Right. So at the end, 
when Martin, uh, when when Sutter confronts uh, the, you know, uh, Michael Bean's family, and he's upstairs talking to to Wendy, um, and he's exp- when she says to him, "Please don't hurt my animals." He has this, you know, moment, uh, this epiphany, like, "Oh my God!" And then he has to explain to her, like, "No, you know, this is what I'm doing. You know, I love animals, and and my my dad made me do." what I'm doing. And he, he created the monster that I am, and I'm doing this to, to rectify all that. Um, so, so that's like the big explanation at the end, but I do think that, you know, I kept it kind of obscure. I wanted you to try and figure it out. I didn't want to just lay it out for everybody. So a lot of people watch the film and they don't get it. Like even at the, even with the end with his whole, you know, uh, speech at the end, they still don't get why he's doing what he's doing. So that's why you see a lot of reviewers say, Oh, it's just like a cheap slasher film because it just went right over their head, which blows my mind. Because if you read a lot of reviews for this film in Europe, especially Germany, where it's a huge hit in Germany, um, they get it. And I get four star reviews all across the board from everybody, you know, lauding the, the, the writing and, 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 and the depth of character and everything. In fact, in Germany, they just released a, uh, um, a new Blu-ray, uh, media book, uh, which is like a 10 page booklet that you can, um, you know, it has pictures of like the cast and the crew and it's sold out in one hour in stores in Germany. Um, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, here in the states, I can't even keep it on Amazon. Amazon actually just took pulled it off of Prime. Uh, they're pulling a lot of films off of off their service right now, but even my films got pulled. So um, I don't get the same respect here that I do overseas. Strangely, and I, and what's funny is I hear Carpenter has the same issue. He he gets no respect here in the United States, but he's an auteur if you go to France or Germany or anywhere else overseas. Very strange. I believe it. American fans are idiots. <laughs> um, uh, so let's move into uh, Malevolence 3 Killer. Uh, uh, the first Malevolence was filmed on 35 millimeter. Um, and uh, during the commentary of uh, Killer, you said that it was hell and that uh, Killer was the first film that you did digitally and that you would never go back to film. Uh, so would you go back and do the first f- two films over in digital if you had the opportunity? Um, I mean... Back then, I mean, back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. If, if I was able to get the same results that I can get now, because I didn't see the results that were, you know, in 2010, when the Alexa camera came out, for me, that was a turning point, because that was the first time I watched something, because I've been following the transition from film to digital from the very beginning. I was even doing tests uh, with the old uh, Canon 100s, which was basically like a, a mini DV tape that they would blow up to 16 millimeter, and I was doing tests on that to see how that would look, and it never looked right. Like The color was never rich enough. Uh, the palette just didn't work. It just didn't sell itself as film. Um, and, uh, until the Alexa came out. And so, um, when that happened, I looked at the footage from that and I said, oh my God, you know, this has the same, uh, width as, you know, any, any, uh, you know, film that I've watched, uh, you can't, if you put these side by side, you can't tell the difference. And I, I know that when I brought the film in to do, uh, the mix down at do art labs, which, you know, all they do is process films. They were asking me what it was shot on. Was it shot on 35? And I was just like, that's like the best compliment you could ever give me because no, it was shot on a $500 camera by black magic and uh, a camera that would basically fit in my shirt pocket. Um, so it, 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 it truly is amazing how far we've come in the last, you know, 15 years as far as, you know, uh, camera technology. It's, it's, it's absolutely stunning. And what's really stunning is that you, you're not seeing tons and tons of great 
material coming out from from independence like with all these cameras out there i would have thought they would have been you know the next stanley kubrick or somebody discovered but it just goes to show you that it really doesn't matter you know we worry so much about you know the origination of of these films and how they look but at the end of the day it nobody gives a shit all they care about is what is be in front of the camera what you're actually the story you're actually telling and what so many young uh, filmmakers miss the point on is it's not about what camera you shoot it on. It's about how long did you spend perfecting your script? Because uh, you can have the best looking film in the world. Nobody's going to give a shit if they don't care about what's happening on screen. Um, and, and I think that's an epidemic right now with kids who are just so excited they can actually go out and shoot a movie. They don't stop to think of whether they actually should make a movie out of the material they're using. Um, and, 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 and it's really like the exception. And this is why it's also so hard for even people like me to get funding these days, because there is so many, there's such a glut of material out there of, you know, everybody and their sister going out and making a movie on their phones because they can, um, you know, Sundance used to get three, four hundred submissions per year. Now they get something like fifteen thousand or something like that. It's it's like an insane number. I, I always wonder, like, how do they even watch these films? You, know, you probably get maybe like three minutes and then they turn it off. So it's 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 become it's become you know a, a, it's like a dual-edged sword. It's definitely democratized the entire industry where now anybody can just pick up a camera and make a movie for no money, uh, and now it just it really boils down to content, you know, and and quality. Yeah, understood. Um, uh, Killer does look smooth as hell. Uh, in comparison, it does look really good. Um, uh, so you go back to the straight slasher approach uh, in Killer. Uh, you pay homage to the slashers in the first film. Uh, is the way Martin is kind of going around, you know, a house going after women in Killer a nod to Bob Clark's Black Christmas? Um, no, no. The 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 idea behind the structure of Malevolence Three was always planned from from the very beginning. I always wanted, I always knew that all three films were going to feel completely different. So I wanted Malevolence, Bereavement, and Malevolence Three Killer to all feel like completely different films that stood on their own. So um, so that's why um, I did that in that style. I always knew that it was going to be this uh, slasher styled. Uh, script and it was going to be fast paced and the reason I did that was because I've basically I've I've spent two films setting up this character so I thought at this point there's been enough character development now it's time to go have fun right and so that's why I elevated the body count and I really just wanted to have fun with this with this uh, third film I wanted it to be fast paced I wanted it to have you know some interesting kills I wanted it to have a bunch of different characters and I wanted it to go against the grain you've been you know the other two films were very dark and very very heavy and this film is very light and very simple you know it's it, it basically is uh, everything that the other two films weren't it's basically kids just hanging out having fun and getting killed um and um i i really wanted it to be uh its own thing and and so i i think it's not really an homage to anything uh, but it's kind of an homage to everything you know you can find a little bit of every slasher in that you know there's a piece of the burning with the hedge clippers there's certainly you know uh the style and, and movement of the killer is reminiscent of michael myers um, I'm not a huge fan of Black Christmas, so it's definitely that's not like really an influence for me. Um, I like the film, but it's not something that's like something that I, I look back on and say, yeah, that that influenced uh, my style. But certainly, you know, Carpenter stuff did. Um, 
and and certainly you know uh there's a lot of friday the 13th in there with the way the characters behave um and stuff like that so you know it's it's kind of an homage to everything understood yeah it uh, it is very much its own film and and i agree with you they're they're very different you know like the first one's a bank robber movie that turns into a slasher movie the sequel or the prequel rather is a uh, in-depth story of the making of the killer you see in the first film and then the third one is like you said just kind of cutting loose just like a slash and gash type of film you know and i love it uh again with the guerrilla filmmaking though you had a lot of unfortunate things happen during the production you know you had no budget left and had to like reshoot a lot of the film uh you almost you know didn't finish it again and but god damn it you did and you know you came over impossible you overcame impossible odds again and how does it feel to complete your trilogy after 14 years and uh do you feel that martin's story is over will we see him again um it feels really good uh especially this third one because yeah we we did experience um ridiculous resistance on this movie starting with obviously with the with the death uh, of one of the lead actors and having to basically scrap everything that he did and start over and and that was the big trouble and for about two years i i kind of gave up on the film because i just there was just no way to do it but i finally was able to solve uh, an issue with the script by uh replacing uh the one character with many characters and that's how i was able to do it i kind of shot it like an episode of like um you know criminal minds where you've got multiple fbi agents instead of just you know the two buddy cops because originally it was just like a buddy cop movie and there is a lot of humor uh that went back and forth between uh the two leads um that you don't see in in the final version but i do think it still kind of you know it, it does work on its own um but uh yeah, and what was the other part of your question? Uh, you asked me if it was if I was happy I finished it, and what was the other part? Uh, do you feel that Martin's story is over? Do you think that we'll see him again? Oh, that's actually a really good question. Um, it won't be from my hands. I, I, I'm, I, I've told the story that I wanted to tell um, as much as I could. And once Jay Cohen passed away last year... Uh, that for me was kind of like the final nail in the coffin, you know, no pun intended. I, I, I realized that, uh, I mean, Jay Cohn was essentially my best friend and he has been at the, you know, center of everything that I've done with these movies, including being one of the stars. So, um, his, his like essence is intertwined with, with this story. So once he passed, it, it kind of was like the final note for me. So that doesn't mean that the franchise is over, because I do think there is still a lot of story to tell, including Sutter's backstory, which was only explored in theory and bereavement, but not in actuality. So you could make an entire movie about that. And I actually do have a script for that. Um, and I do think, you know, there's obviously the continuation, you know, where does Martin go from here? Because he doesn't die in Malevolence 3. And, and of course, uh, Katie Gibson's character survives. So there is, you know, certainly two two more films that could be made. Um, but for me, I think, I, I think I've, I've reached the end. Um, but I never say never, you know, I mean, look at Wes Craven, all the things that he did, he ended up directing four screams. So it doesn't mean I'll, I'll never revisit it. Um, but it, there is a lot of other material that I've written that I'd like to, uh, explore before I do another malevolence. And again, it's, it's, it's something that I've worked on for so many years, um, that, uh, you know, I think, I think I've said all I, all I have to say at, at this point. Um, but that's again, that's that's right now at this point that we're talking. And with the uh, final film in the series, Killer, I heard that it was originally titled Alone. Uh, was there any reason for the uh, name change? Um, 
I just love the idea, the simplicity of killer. Um, I just love the how it, it basically in one word sums it up because essentially that that is what it is. You know, we're talking about a killer, and I just love that title. Um, and in fact, it was just called Killer. And the only reason I added in Malevolence Three was because I got a lot of feedback from people uh, when Bereavement came out. So many people approached me and said, "You know, I had no idea." This was a sequel to Malevolence. Even after I watched both films, I, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, 100% sure that this was an actual sequel until I looked it up and did some research. So that kind of stayed with me, and I thought, you know what? Um, I love the idea of having these one-word titles and the simplicity of that, but um, I think it's important for, you know, for that connective tissue. So I put, I re-released Male- uh, Bereavement with the Malevolence Two banner and. Uh, of course, I added Malevolence three to to Killer. So I and I think it was a wise move because ever since I did that, um, the recognition of these three films as a trilogy has elevated this tremendously. I mean, I've I've seen the fan base quadruple since Killer came out. Um, so it's it's definitely made a huge impact now that everybody's aware of of these films and and how they intersect. Was it a lot of people that uh, weren't able to no- notice the tie in between Malevolence and Bereavement? I feel like it's 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 pretty much there. I I wouldn't think it was a lot of people. It's your casual viewer. I think us horror fans, like we get it, but the casual viewer doesn't get it. Uh, and there was a lot of casual fans of Malevolence that would have, you know, definitely sought out Bereavement had they known it was a sequel. But, you know, they're they're not, you know, like diehard horror fans. So so for them, you know, it they didn't really make the connection. Um so I think and and, and you know, truth be told, that's probably the majority of the audience is the casual viewer. You know, it's, you know, we're all diehard horror fans, but there's, there's only so many of us to go around. Um, so I think, I think, you know, just from a financial perspective, it was, it was a much, uh, better move for me to, to tie all these together. Um, because it, it, it definitely has made a huge impact. I mean, I can just tell you, I do all the, just the distribution for all of my films. I handle everything, including all the marketing. So um, I even, you know, when you order stuff from my store, I ship it personally, right? It's not, it's not going through a service. So, you know, I sign everything personally as it's shipped. And, um, you know, so I see everything that's going on and I, I've definitely seen a, a huge impact since, since, you know, uh, killer came out and since the re-release of, of M, uh, M2. And uh, the final film has one of my favorite kills in it, the uh, lawnmower blade to the head. Uh, what's your favorite kill in the series? Oh, that's my favorite too. I love that, that shot. Um, and it was, it was a really fun one to shoot with Jay Cohen. It was actually, uh, Jay Cohen's idea. Um, and, uh, I, I think it all came out great, but what's also cool too, is, um, it, it was done practically, you know, all the effects were done in camera, but it wasn't gory enough for me. It, it was, there was something missing. And so I actually had, um, uh, a friend of mine, Vincent McTurnan, do some very subtle digital uh, effects to that shot um, with the blood that really, really sells it. And so um, I was so happy with the way it came out. Um, and the, and it, it's such a like a surprise and a shock that 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 part. But also, I always remember Jay Cohen was holding. He's such a I mean, he was a real no-nonsense. Uh, he was like the ultimate non-poser. He was a, just a, such a really cool guy. And he was actually holding that blade with his bare hands. 
Um, and if you've ever taken like a, a sharp lawnmower blade and swung it around with your bare hands, it's not fun and it cuts you up. And he actually had cuts on his hand, but he wanted to sell it. So, you know, you know, he wanted to make it look so real that he was you know, willing to, you know, hold it himself, you know, and not have like a dummy hand or whatever. So, so he had a lot of cuts on his hand when it was over, but he was just so thrilled with, you know, being able to do it the right way. And that always sticks in my head, you know, what a, what a, you know, what a gamer he was, what a team player he was. Ah, uh, well, it definitely paid off. I didn't even notice anything digital that was added to it. I, I think it was a really, really well done effect. Thanks, and and uh, you know, Vincent would would definitely appreciate you saying that because that is the ultimate goal to to not notice his handiwork. And uh, do you have any projects coming up? And uh, where could people find you on uh, social media or online? Um, well, you can find me on Facebook at Stephen, um, you know, just look up Stephen Mena. Uh, you can find me online, uh, stephenmena.com. And it's important. It's S-T-E-V-A-N-M-E-N-A. Uh, a lot of people misspell my, my first name. So it's stevenmena.com. Uh, and that has a little bit about me. And you can also access my store there. Um, and that's that's pretty much, you know, the extent of what I have, uh, online, uh, you know, definitely going through my website is, uh, is the best way to, to reach me as far as like contacting me or, or, you know, purchasing any of my stuff. I mean, I'm on eBay too, but, but my website is the best way to, to, to do that. Well, thank you. And, uh, we definitely appreciate having you on and being able to talk about all three movies here in the trilogy. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I got to say, um, of all the interviews I've done, you guys have asked some of the coolest questions, uh, of any of these interviews. None of your questions were, were generic. They were all really well thought out. And, uh, and I appreciate that. Thank you. And we definitely appreciate it as well. And hopefully we'll talk to you soon. All right. Well, thanks guys. And, and best of luck, uh, with, uh, with the podcast. Thank you. Great, man. Thank you. Have a great night. All right. You too, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks to all the horror hounds and smokers out there. Thank you for tuning in, and thanks again to Stephen Mena for joining us today. It is really crazy how far in depth Stephen went for the psychology and bereavement. And Drew, I know you salty. He thought my favorite kill was the best in the series. <laughs> now tune in next week when we have a very special episode for you. We're going to celebrate the 35th anniversary of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives with Jason himself, C.J. Graham, and the man behind the monster, director Tom McGoughlin. Follow us online on Facebook and Instagram at HighOnHorror420 and on Twitter at High underscore Horror. You can also reach us via email, HighOnHorror420 at gmail.com. And I think that'll wrap her up for this week. Catch you later. Bye, guys.